Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. The Prime Minister Christopher Luxon's being warned if he wants to strengthen New Zealand's security relationship with Australia, he'll need to boost defence spending. Mr Luxon will fly to Sydney tomorrow in what will be his first overseas engagement since taking office. He expects to discuss the two countries' close security and defence relationships with the Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. Here's our political reporter, Katie Scotcher. Christopher Luxon is set to visit Australia tomorrow for his first foray on the world stage. But it's still not yet clear how he will actually get there. It's incredibly frustrating. I mean... Uh, we're not sending people to the moon, we're just trying to get them to Australia here. <laughs> the Prime Minister was set to cross the ditch in the Defence Forces Boeing 757. That's despite promising an opposition to only fly commercially if elected. But the old Boeing has broken down again anyway, meaning Mr Luxon may have to take the Boeing Poseidon P-8, which is a maritime patrol plane, or by a last-minute commercial ticket. We've had a series now of incidences you know, over the last few years that are, I think, embarrassing uh, for, for New Zealand, and I think that's something that we genuinely need to have a, a bigger conversation about. The Prime Minister is focused for now on his trip to Sydney, where he'll meet his Australian counterpart, Anthony Albanese. Christopher Luxon expects security and defence will dominate the discussion between the two leaders. Without doubt we are in contested space uh, and actually I want to make sure that we are a very good partner in that regard and, uh, and are working very positively and constructively with Australia, particularly in the Pacific. Christopher Luxon's laser focus on security appears to be a shift from the previous government which prioritised trying to improve the lives of New Zealanders living in Australia. No, I just want to make sure that we are a good partner uh, and uh, we are doing and, and, and holding up our end and actually uh, working I think very constructively with Australia. But he won't say how exactly he plans to achieve that. The University of Otago's Director of International Studies, Robert Patman, expects Australia would want this country to spend more on defence. If you want to enhance security, you have to do your fair share. How do you do your fair share? You have to contribute to capabilities that both countries will be pooling. Australia's defence spending currently sits at about 2% of GDP. New Zealand, on the other hand, spends roughly 1.2%. Former Defence Minister Labor's Penny Henare says the coalition government needs to make clear how much more it is willing to invest. What I haven't seen from this new government is any clear indication on whether they're going to be taking defence when asked, I recall, Judith Collins, you know, being non-committal around the kind of finance and investment that they'll need to put into defence, uh, but simply saying that uh, she wants them to know that she has their back while well, it's time to show it. Christopher Luxon has previously dampened expectations on more defence spending, saying it would be completely contingent on the fiscal situation. Maybe the disruption to his Australia trip caused by the old defence planes might give him pause for thought. Well, the housing minister is launching an independent review of Kainga Ora, citing his concerns about the growing debt level there, which has reached $12.3 billion. Former Prime Minister Sir Bill English will lead the review, which is going to report back in March next year. Joining us now is the Minister of Housing, Chris Bishop. Kia ora, good morning, Minister. Good morning. Uh, so this review was it was part of your election policy, wasn't it? So you already had concerns before speaking with Treasury. Has something changed? Uh, yes, we've received more worrying advice. It's true to say we were concerned about 
uh, the performance of Kainga Ora from before the election. Their debt is, uh, and this is public, uh, forecast to rise to around $29 billion by 2033. Uh, since the election, we've received concerning advice from Treasury around uh, the fiscal track of Kainga Ora and their debt track. Uh, and we can't make that public, or I'm advised we can't make it public. It's commercially sensitive at this time, uh, but it does confirm that an independent review is the right course of action. So more debt than you thought. When you talk about commercially sensitive, is that about protecting creditors? or? Well, it's about protecting the Crown. Um, the Crown Aura is a $45 billion agency. It has expenditure of $2.5 billion per year. It has a significant impact on um, Obergar, which is essentially the government. Um, uh, surplus um, or deficit uh, and so it, it's really important that the agency is run efficiently and effectively and we want to get to the bottom of what is happening inside the uh, inside the company. So this review, I know you haven't released the terms of reference yet, is it focusing primarily on debt? It's focusing on um, financing generally, asset management and procurement, because all of those things go to that. Uh, that is the primary driver of it, um, and I'll release the terms of so, reference, so uh, reference on the board. What is your suspicion? I mean, what, what is your suspicion? Is it an inefficiency issue? Is it negligence? What do you think is going on? Oh, negligence is a strong word. My, my concern is that uh, hiring aura has high costs uh, relative to what they otherwise could be. Uh, that they are, and this is from from what I've said publicly before, uh, that they are not efficient um, at building new uh, social houses, which we desperately uh, need, uh, and that they have a very big backroom office, for example. So to give you public numbers again, the number of backroom staff at Kaunawara has risen by around 1,500 in just the last four years. And so that's a, that's a significant. Yes. So your your, your basic assumption is that someone else, another entity or entities, could build more houses better and more cheaply. Uh, not that they would. Uh, not that they would necessarily. Not, not that we would do that. But just that um, it's fair to when you're assessing the performance of an agency, to fair to look at private sector comparisons as to how expensive it is to build um, and maintain a, a, a house. And what, what evidence do you have that that might be the case, that, that a private provider could do better? I've, I've received advice from officials in relation to the, the cost um, the cost of building houses uh, by Kainga Ora and the private sector and also the maintenance and the backroom um, activities required to run a, a, a state house. And how do they compare? I mean, is it uh, is it twice as expensive to do it through Kainga Order, or how would you? Yeah, how do those numbers compare? Well, that is that is one of the issues we're getting the review to get to the bottom of the precise um, delta between that uh, and exactly um, how we can drive some efficiencies to make it better. And I'll really do you have a do you have a ballpark on that? Because you have those numbers already, don't you? Uh, I'm not prepared to release that at this time, um, but we will we will do so in due course. Okay. Where does this leave the 25,000 households on the waiting list for a house? What are your commitments in terms of building more state houses? Uh, We need to get the waiting list down as quickly as we can. It's frankly a disgrace and a problem that we've inherited from the last government. Um, The numbers rose by 20,000 in the last six years. Uh, There's a range of things we need to do. There's no one silver bullet. We do need to build more social houses and add more social housing places. How many more are you committing to build? Well, at the election, we committed to building, um, to continuing with Labor's housing uh, spending track, which adds places, not necessarily houses. 
Um, but we also need to fix the private rental market because you, the, the, the biggest driver of the social housing waitlist is the fact that rents are increasingly unaffordable for people. So putting downward pressure on private sector rents uh, is, is the biggest way we can have an impact on the social housing waitlist. So okay, so that, that is moving away, though, from providing social housing. The Green Party, uh, in, in response to this review, has said, uh, accused National of making up false problems to deflect from your real intention. The idea there being that you'll undermine kainga order so that you provide fewer social houses. Well, that's just fantasy. I mean, we're trying to save kainga aura. It's really important that it's run properly. It's, it uh, provides accommodation uh, for around 200,000 quite vulnerable New Zealanders, often quite vulnerable people. Kainga Ora is the country's biggest landlord. It operates 70,000 social houses around the country. It's extremely important that that is run efficiently and effectively. This is a good idea for taxpayers and also for tenants. And that it's funded sufficiently by central government? M- money is not the problem with Kainga Ora. They have been given billions and billions of dollars over the last uh, six years and they have gone on a borrowing and spending spree. Uh, in the last six years. So that is not necessarily the problem. The problem is the way they run themselves, and that is exactly what, why we've commissioned the review. OK, just finally, the eviction process, that was another thing you were going to have a look at regarding Kainga Order. Where are you at with that? Uh, we're taking some advice on that, and uh, we'll be making announcements in due course. Are you still proceeding with a more uh, proactive eviction process for disruptive tenants? Yes, uh, but my focus um, in the immediate short term is on getting this review up and running, but um, we are proceeding with work around um, changing the, the way in which Kaimora engages with a problematic tenants. Okay, appreciate your time this morning. That was the Minister of Housing, Chris Bishop. Drivers are more likely to be fined for speeding, talking on their cell phones or not wearing a seatbelt more than ever. More than ever before, in the last four years, the number of infringement notices doled out by police for these offences have shot up dramatically. Phil Pennington has been looking at the numbers and is in the studio with me now. Kia ora, Phil. Morena, Charlotte. First of all, what can you tell us about the fines for cell phones? Well, they've gone up, yes, tripled since 2019. Now you're heading for the nine-month period, January to September this year, $6 million, which is pretty steep. And uh, if you went back to 2019, that figure would have only been $2 million. So that's a whole lot faster, a whole lot more snapping going on if you're on your phone. We know, of course, they've been using the new um, smarter cameras to ping, not ping people, but to detect how many people are on their phones. They were doing that in Auckland this year. That was only a test, so that's not actually reflected in these figures. This is really just um, police by the side of the road doing it, I guess, because we don't have cameras that pick that up yet. So imagine once the cameras do start doing that, that'll, that'll shoot up. You also see shooting up 40% rise in mobile speed uh, camera tickets. So people going too fast caught on mobile camera tickets. Tickets um, 40% higher. So that's pretty uh, a large figure up from then. That's just from last year. And that's on a steady sort of rise up to about $26 million for the nine months. Um, interestingly, static cameras have actually gone down in the same period. So we've been asking police, so what's going on there? Now, last year, interestingly, about the same time when we started looking at these figures, these come out regularly, but this, these are the latest ones that get us up to September. Um, when we began looking at them last year, it became evident that they were getting uh, a lot more um, speed camera finds in number, but not an equivalent 
in value. It had gone up a little bit in value. So we said, what's going on? And it turned out the police had tweaked the cameras. So in other words, the amount of the fine was smaller, but there were many, many more fines, right? Because a lot more drivers were getting caught in that just over the limit, in the 1 to 11. And that was the end of last year when they admitted that they'd done that. So we've gone back to them this year to say, well, you know, have you changed the... These are the settings on the cameras. Have you changed those at all? Interesting things to be doing in the run-up to the holiday season. So we don't know if that's happened, but what we do see here is more of these fines, but less use of static. Um, seat belts too, there's been a rise in that. That's about $5.5 million for the nine months now. And um, ooh, what have we got? 286,000 uh, notices too for speeding fines issued by police officers out on the beat. How does that compare to what we're seeing on the road in terms of deaths, fatalities, injuries? Yeah, well, it's a really interesting time because the new government coming in and they have taken aim at some pruning back road to zero. So, for instance, they're not that keen on some of these lower speed limits, uh, lowered limits on some of the highways. You know, the ATK, they don't like that so much. Um, and wanting to get people, they say, faster and safer. So they're not saying not more safely, but they are saying faster. Now, the whole thinking... In the previous road to zero, coming up to this government, was that speed is really your number one enemy. If you can bring down your speed, you can bring down your uh, fatalities and your injuries. Now, the the, the a road toll for deaths is lower than last year, but higher than the previous two years. It's at about 320, and last year was about 370. Um, we've still got another couple of weeks to go. But DSI, which is death, serious injury, that's a worry. That's now at about 20, over 2,800, and they had had a target of 2,400. So it's like 20% ahead of that. So the figures, the graphs are going the wrong way. But, of course, if you're Simeon Brown, the transport minister, that's not your problem because you've inherited it. But what is he going to do? Now, he said in a statement, we said, uh, what do you think about the speed camera? Do you think they maybe got the settings wrong? Didn't want to go there. Police, that's operational, Simeon Brown said. But in terms of the other things, he's saying... He is not saying to motorists break the speed limit. He is saying that their focus is on safe infrastructure and getting there efficiently. So that's not about breaking the speed limit. But on highways, um, they've got that tension because they do are stressing that they want people to get around more efficiently. And some of that road to zero work is being put on the back burner. So what's going to happen to that death serious injury rate, Charlotte? That's the real key, and I think a year from now will be a really interesting thing to look at. Waka Kotahi in their report, they say, we have not done the work we expected on medium barriers, on other safety measures on the roads, partly because of public resistance to slower speed limits. And you also see another a key factor here. Police have not been doing the mobile speed camera use that they promised they would. This has been down at about three quarters of the level of what it should be and they promised, been promising for a couple of years, they would push that up to the target of 80,000 plus hours a year and they haven't done that. Still at 60,000 plus. But they have done one thing, they have pushed up the breath testing a lot. They're at 2.6 million for the year. Uh, the target though was three but that's a lot higher than it has been. Thank you very much, Phil Pennington. A good reminder to look at your driving over the holidays as well. We're going to welcome Farah Hancock into the studio now uh, to talk about the Therapeutic Products Act. Uh, kia ora, Farah. Now, sitting at number 47 of, oh, it's well down the list, isn't it, on the 49 things in the government's 100-day plan is beginning work to repeal the Therapeutic Products Act. It was part of the New Zealand First and Act Party's coalition agreements with uh, 
sorry, National Parties Coalition Agreements with New Zealand First uh, in particular and has had a very long and interesting history with uh, attempts to regulate natural health products like vitamins and supplements, which will all fall under this Act. So what is it about Winston Peters and the natural health products industry? Uh, Farah is here now to tell us about this. So uh, kia ora Farah, how many times has New Zealand First actually been involved in what would have been failed attempts to regulate natural health products? Well, if you listened to Winston Peters during the campaign or saw ads from the Natural Health Alliance, you would have heard um, it said that he stopped regulation in 2007 and 2017 and repealing the Therapeutics Products Act was part of what he was campaigning on, the party was campaigning on in 2023. So this is part of the coalition agreement. And even though these rules don't kick in until September 2026, there's a bit of a rush on repealing it. It's sitting in the government's 100-day plan. So obviously a priority uh, for some. What exactly, can we go back to starters, what exactly is the Therapeutic Products Act? It's quite a, a broad act. It covers a big range of things from medicines to medical devices, but it also covers natural health products. And, and why is it up for repeal? Well, part of the natural health product sector, mainly importers, they really don't like this act. Firstly, they say vitamins and supplements shouldn't be regulated in a similar way to medicines. They say they're low risk. And they would like to have them regulated under the Food Act. So basically, they think it's a really heavy-handed approach. Secondly, these products would need to be registered. And with that registration comes an annual fee. Now, they say this will add a lot of cost, and that cost could put some smaller players out of the market. Okay, so that is the industry view. What are other views on this? Well, that was part of the industry. There's a second part of the industry, which are more uh, manufacturers and exporters, and they're really keen for a certain part of the act, which would allow them to make evidence-based health claims on their, about their products. So they say um, that if they could do this, they could earn another $500 million a year in exports. And they've been pushing to make um, to be able to make evidence-based health claims since about 2003. Okay, uh, back to New Zealand first. Winston Peters says he has stopped the legislation before. So what is the history there? In the early 2000s, there was an attempt to create a trans-Tasman agency. So New Zealand first actually opposed this to begin with. But after there were a few changes, the party ended up supporting the bill to the select committee. Now, at this point, it really struggled. Two independent MPs decided not to support it. And New Zealand First even suggested an additional amendment and an attempt to get it over the line. Okay. But that didn't work. It failed. It was shelved for not enough support. Okay. What about in 2017? There was an, another attempt to regulate natural health products with a bill that was introduced in about 2011. And again, New Zealand First initially supported the bill. But in a press release in 2017, it was still going on, it was quite a long process, Peter said the party had looked into it more and wouldn't be supporting it. And it vanished from the order paper when New Zealand First formed a coalition with Labour in 2017. And now it's been revealed the New Zealand First Foundation received donations from people in the industry. Yes, there was a court case from um, about the New Zealand First Foundation's donations. And in that, we learned that about $26,000 was received from industry players between 2017 and 2018. And all of them sort of said that part of the reason they donated was wanting to stop this regulation. Okay, what about this election? Yeah, Winston has again, Winston Peters and New Zealand First, has again enjoyed the support of the industry. In May, he was invited to a meeting put on by uh, the part of the industry which doesn't want the regulation. 
They then decided to support New Zealand First and they ran several full-page full newspaper advertisements sort of saying, look, if you don't want this to happen, vote New Zealand First. And then as we saw, New Zealand First went from 2.6% of the party vote in 2020 to 6% this year. And we did ask, RNZ did ask the party if the, the support from the industry has influenced its stance on regulations. Mm. And we were given a written um, response saying, look, I just appreciate the support from the industry. Okay. Thank you for looking into that for us. That is our in-depth reporter for Ra Hancock. Winston Peters says his government's priority for the Pacific is to bring unity and engagement to every country and to see that the Pacific Islands Forum works cohesively. The Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign Affairs has been meeting with the leaders of Fiji and Tuvalu and Suva, as well as the Secretary-General of the Forum. He joins us now. Tēnā Mr Peters. Good morning. Your first trip in your role as Foreign Affairs Minister, why did you choose to go to Fiji first? I think it's because the Pacific Islands Forum is there and also there is enormous uh, build-up of international representation in Fiji itself over the last uh, few years. And it was important to re-engage with them in terms of the new administration as fast as possible. What did you want to get out of this meeting with them? Well, we're in the blue continent, so to speak. It's about one quarter of the world's surface. The population is not great, but it's very, very critical that right across there, the uh, blue continent, the Pacific Islands, Micronesia, Melanesia, all uh, on the same wavelength as to the issues of security and future prosperity of the region. And uh, New Zealand is a critical country in ensuring a better and longer-term resilient engagement with the Pacific country countries, and that's what we want to do. We've, we wrote the Pacific Reset, you recall, in 2018, and set out to change the narrative and the way New Zealand looked at the Pacific, and we want to resume and renew that now with a greater intensity. What do you think are some of the key problems facing Fiji right now and, and, and what is New Zealand's role and in, in, in what can we do to help? They are facing in the countries, particularly the low-lying ones, uh, questions of the issues of climate change, the impact of uh, not having the resources to build up resilience and to take um, you know, action now before adverse events. They were represented at COP28 saying the same thing. But in the meantime, just like us, they're in a transition. If you go to Fiji and all those countries, they've got to have vehicles. Those vehicles are financed with fossil fuels and there's no immediate short-term change. But the sooner we can get together a long-term permanent solution, the better. And then, of course, there's the questions of standard, uh, the cost of living, just like we have. Um, and uh, transportation costs have all gone up. So it's a matter of ensuring that around the world with countries who have got aid programs, maybe that we together, working together, can do far more with our money and make it go a whole lot, uh, whole lot further in the region. Sitabini Rambuka was, was very pleased to see you and welcome you back. How, how would you describe that relationship with, with him and other leaders in this area? Well, in a long career, I've done my best to make sure in engaging with Pacific people that the one fundamental that's sometimes overlooked is no matter how small countries are and how big they are, 
you treat them identically. You treat them the same. You expect to be treated. Uh, you, be, you expect to be treated as an equal, and make sure you treat all these people as an equal. And if we do that, we're going to be uh, far more um, successful in our engagement, because there will no be no sense of resentment that somehow we're talking down to them. There have been times in the past where we have talked down to them, regrettably, but that's not been a mistake that I have made, uh, and uh, I think that is counting and helping in our re-engagement now. I understand you want changes to the way the Pacific Islands Forum is is run. What would you like to see there? Oh, it's just a matter of ensuring that uh, we look at problems that are right here, right now, and that we find find solutions and make them a priority and with speed. Sometimes things have dragged on for far too long, and uh, I, I suppose... Uh, it's because of um, dialogue across a wide number of countries. But the forum itself, and it's not a criticism, it's, it's really a statement of future intent. We need to engage on the issues, find solutions as fast as we can, and put them in place. And as I say, there are too many of them for the forum uh, not to get a sense of renewed purpose now and make their actions far more meaningful. These are not comfortable days. These are days of crisis, and we've got to step up and ensure that we understand that. How concerning is the increasing presence of, of China in the Pacific to you? Again, we uh, a country that has long said that uh, the Pacific is about its name, actually, uh, and about uh, also the rules and laws and democracy and freedom and all those principles are important to us. We share that and we hope that any country that are seeking to be engaged in the Pacific understand the special nature of the Pacific and the fundamentals of the governance of them. Uh, when you say how concerning is China? Well, the reality is uh, we've engaged with some projects with China. We'll be talking with them very, very shortly about long-term engagement, uh, but uh, as we have said in the past, the Pacific is uh, an area of peace and tranquility, uh, but the rule of law has got to be upheld and we seek to work with countries who understand that. Um, just while we've got you here, Mr Peters, you might have heard our story just before 7.30 around the Therapeutics Act. What is your relationship between New Zealand First and, and the therapeutics industry? We don't have any relationship other than to support their cause, which I've done for a long time. I began in 2007 when I was first the foreign minister, and I renewed it in 2017 because I think people should have the right to take the products that they desire if they are safe and not harmful. So you do not have, have a relationship impose, with them? Not, 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 have, not have them imposed by Granny State. And the next question I'm going to ask you, this is a meeting I had in May. You never covered it, did you, even though it was packed? No, no, here we are after election, and you decide that the purpose of transmission of information that should have been happening before the election so we all knew what was going on, you would, uh, your, you and your organisation, the mainstream media, would gaslight New Zealand first and now raise the issue after the election because you have a reason, and I don't know what that is. Did the therapeutics industry donate money to your campaign? The therapeutic industry, I understand, some did. A whole lot didn't, as I understand. And a whole lot of other people did. And some, some did it in small sums and large sums, all of which will be disclosed. But my point to you is, why on earth is a taxpayer-owned organisation called Morning Report not covering these critical meetings when people needed to know before the election and decide to have a little swipe after the election? Riddle me that. 
Thank you for coming on the show, Mr Peters. That is the Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign Affairs talking about his experience in Fiji and responding to our story just before 7.30 on the therapeutics bill. Te Pukinga has announced the departure of its chief executive, Peter Winder, as it heads for its biggest deficit yet. A document obtained by RNZ shows it is expecting to lose about $93 million this year. It says that's due to plunging enrolments and a skewed funding system. Our education correspondent, John Gerritsen, is in the studio with me now. Kia ora. Kia ora. Let's talk about the latest in this string of departures. Yeah, well, uh, yesterday the uh, council of the organisation announced that Peter Winder is leaving. He's the chief executive. He's been in that role for about a year. Um, Now, it didn't say he'd resigned or that he'd been made redundant. Rather, the council and Mr Winder have agreed that his role is now redundant. So there's a bit of nuance there. And certainly, um, he he took on the job to transform this organisation, bring together work-based training and polytechnics, and now he's being asked to stop all that and unwind the organisation. So, yeah, the, the, the job... Has, has definitely changed. Um, also going is uh, a dep- one of the deputy chief executives, uh, Megan Gibbons, who used to be chief executive of Otago Polytechnic, and the council chair left, uh, I think, last week it was. You're losing some uh, top-heavy people there, but you've also been leaked a, a document... Yeah, that, that's right. This is a briefing to the Minister from November, um, and it lays out just sort of what situation the organisation is, is, is in, and it, it's pretty bad. There's a lot of red in the spreadsheets here. Um, basically, the polytechnics are going to lose a huge amount of money, something like $185 million this year, whereas the work-based training division is going to make a profit of $100 million. Um, then there's a few costs for head office, so the, the net result is this expected deficit of about $93 million, which is, is the biggest tepuking is made, but also in this document it says, look, you know, we've, we're on the track for transformation, for making savings. Um, we, we, we've we've got this sort of scale and and so forth. So it's quite an interesting read when you can see there's a few, you know, uh, well, few attempts, I suppose, to show the value of the organisation which this government wants wants to unwind. Yeah, and and staff, what are they saying about those government plans? Yeah, well, I mean, I've talked to a couple of people um, who who you know they very much doubt that the polytechnics can be viable. Um, the funding system was a really big problem um, that is going to change in a couple of years um, because it actually reduced funding for polytechnic courses by quite a lot um, while well, increasing funding for work-based training but um, this document says that uh, the polytechnics came in with financial weaknesses and the people I've talked to have said you know just a little bit more time and to Tepukinga could really have proved its value and would have saved a lot of money um, and now they're moving, the government wants local leadership at the polytechnics which will be very costly so there is a real uh, feeling that maybe this isn't the best way to go. Kia ora, thank you very much. That's our education correspondent John Gerritsen talking about Tepukinga as it's heading for its biggest deficit yet. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 